Recovery Elevator, episode 456. Well, I think that's that's the work, right? I mean, that's that's a lot of the why, because that stuff's living in your subconscious and guiding your behavior and, and your actions and your thoughts, even if you're not aware of it. So you got to address that stuff. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. On today's episode, we have Nathan. He's 42 years old from Andover, Minnesota, and took his last drink on April 19th, 2023. Great job, Nathan. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe RE chat hosts. You guys do an amazing job, and thank you for your time. Listeners, today is going to be a good day, and today has already been a good day. I am planting the seed now that on January 1st, 2024, we are starting our dry January course called Restore. I think we're meeting 14 times in January. That's going to be Sunday, Mondays, and Wednesday evenings. And we're making some changes to the course that I know you guys are going to like. There is a link in the show notes. Thank you, Robin, for more information. And before we get any further, let's hear from a fantastic sponsor, Exact Nature. Exact Nature's all-natural CBD-based products are specially formulated to help you lighten the load in recovery. Recently, I've been taking Exact Nature's Z's pills and sleeping so well. These products are 100% THC-free and they can be a great tool for your recovery. Learn more at exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Okay, let's get started. Today is our last episode of our 10-part series where we answer questions from listeners. If you submitted a question, thank you so much. If you submitted a question and we didn't get to answer it, apologize, but we got a lot of questions. All right, today's question comes from Darren A. who says, can you discuss resentment and letting go of resentment? Darren, thank you for listening and congrats on your recent sobriety run, my man. Oh my, oh my, how do you let go of resentments? Great question. Again, thank you, Darren. Resentments are relapses waiting to happen. If you've been to an AA meeting or two, you've probably heard something similar to that. And I agree. I also think it's safe to say that 10 to 15% of all 12-step meetings are anchored in resentment, how to let them go, how to deal with them, etc. What I'm trying to say is this one is a biggie, but I can answer this question and I'm confident in the answers. The way to get over resentments isn't by letting them go or even trying to let them go, but it's how you view what took place to create the resentment in the first place. Let me explain. You will overcome 0.0% of your resentments as long as you're the victim, or as long as you say statements like, guess what happened to me? or you'll never believe what happened to me this afternoon. Does this sound familiar? And I hate to break it to you, you will overcome zero resentments, nor will you quit drinking if you're the victim. So there is this theory, and I track with it, which is that life is basically a school, a curriculum of sorts, that the people, places, and things, but mostly people, are there to help us grow and become deeper human beings. Yes, this does include the group of people who are there to enrich our growth through positive interactions, 
but this also includes the bully who gives you a titty twister so bad that your nipple bleeds. And I'm talking about myself, my freshman year in high school, and I was not the bully. To expand on this theory, the people we encounter in life are there to help us grow. I'm referencing the bad boss, the friend you just had a falling out with, your neighbor who you wish would just move away, or maybe it's a family member. In fact, usually it's a family member. So the theory is this, none of this is happening to you. Remember, that's how a victim speaks. The flip here is that everything that has ever happened to you in your life is happening for you, for your own personal growth and development to make you a more resilient human being. And if you don't track with this theory, or if it turns out to be total bullshit, then remember, we are an anti-fragile species, meaning what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Thank you, Nietzsche. This can be proved in a petri dish, in nature, on a coral reef, and in your own life. In fact, this is how we build muscles in the gym. We stress muscle fibers, and then they grow back stronger. So, these resentments are actually here to help us, to push us outside our comfort zones. Resentments are the teachers. Yes, they suck, they emotionally and physically hurt, but they are the opportunities for healthy and normal growth. Have you ever heard the phrase, we aren't mad at the things we think we're mad at? Okay, yes, you have been harmed or someone has pissed you off, but a resentment sometimes can be nothing more than an emotional front, which we most commonly refer to as anger. We are feeling anger. Anger is upon us and the mind will usually project this outward and attach it to another human being as the source incorrectly. So advice here is to explore that emotional front of anger internally instead of placing it outward on another human being. Let's talk resentment in parents. Oh my goodness. And this one is justified. Parents do come up short and it affects their children for a lifetime. But here is another spiritual theory that I've come across. The theory is we pick our parents opposed to them choosing us. Again, this takes us out of the victim mentality. So if the human life is a curriculum, then we pick the parents that will best help us learn the lessons we want to learn in this life. Yes, your parents may have fucked you up pretty good, but that also happened for you and not to you. Again, this is a theory and for some, I get it, it can be way out there. Resentments. This next strategy has helped me a lot. Stop labeling things as good or bad. When a person, place, or thing pisses you off, try to recognize the mind immediately slapping a label of fuck this, this sucks, this shouldn't be happening, yet try to remain open. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. That person who may have recently dogged you may have actually shielded you from a tragedy down the road. And again, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. So each time I feel a resentment coming on or one that I have trouble working through, I say, well, shit, Paul, looks like it's time to grow. Resentments. There is a phrase I've said on this podcast many times, which is, you can be right or you can have peace. Now, my batting average sucks with this one, but I try to repeat this mantra to myself when I encounter a difficult life challenge. And at times, I'm able to choose peace over being right, but not always, and that's a damn tough one. So I want to hear from the listener. How do you overcome resentments? Let us know in our Monday Instagram post on the Recovery Elevator Instagram page. All right. Thank you so much, Darren, for the question. And thank you for listening. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Nathan. 
Raise your hand if you get super overwhelmed during the end of year season. I've noticed in the past, I get frustrated at myself because I know that I want to have a good time. I know that I want to be present, but I end up feeling overwhelmed, stressed, and irritable. It's been very helpful to talk to my therapist during this time of year to help me stabilize, ground myself, and gather more tools for my recovery kit. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Nathan. Nathan, how you doing today? Uh, I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing well. It's a beautiful fall day in the upper Midwest. What else could we ask for? So I'm hanging in there. Uh, Nathan, can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? Uh, my last drink was April 19th of this year. Uh, a little over five months. How are you feeling? Um, I feel okay. <laughs> Uh, my life's taken a little bit of a turn since getting sober, so I feel really good about sobriety itself, but there's some other changes as a result that have been a little bit negative, but we're yeah. still here. We're doing it. Well, I'm proud of you for, for sticking with it. That's sometimes that's part of it. And it's, I mean, that's not to, I don't know, I, not to say that to like, just brush it off like, oh, hey, sometimes stuff happens, but I think we can find the blessings in it too. But uh, we'll get into more of that. But before we do, first, nice job on five months, man. That's uh, that's amazing. Thanks. Um, can you let listeners know a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, what you do for a living, age, any family or pets that you care to mention? And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Yeah. Uh, so I'm Nathan. I'm 42. I'm currently in Andover, Minnesota. I Worked in financial operations for 20 years and three months until last week when I got notified of my layoff. So technically, I'm still employed through November, but kind of unemployed. Married, currently going through the process of a divorce there. We have two cats. Uh, Taz is 21 and Emmy Lou is six. And let's see, <clears throat> for fun... I like to call myself a woodworker, but really, I think it's more of a collector of vintage tools. I like to golf, really like reading, try to do some writing now and then. That's about it. 21 is like super old for a cat, right? Yeah. Yeah. And she's had a ton of health issues, but um, my wife's in the in the vet business. So whatever she's doing to take care of her, it's working. <laughs> Get Guinness out there. Nathan and I were talking just before we started recording about tools because I just went some tool shopping today. <laughs> Is there a certain type of woodworking or a certain type of tool that's like your favorite to use? Um, I really like using hand planes. So I'm trying to teach myself to build furniture with hand tools, mostly hand tools. I've got a powered uh, lunchbox planer because trying to dimension boards by hand is masochistic and I'm too old for that. So... <laughs> I watched this guy on YouTube. Um, I forget his name. He's a football player. He's out of, I think he's out of like Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. 
and he does he does a lot of this hand playing and i don't know he i never see him check it straight afterwards but it's i don't that's i don't have that skill set but i could watch people do like that that hand work all day yeah it's fun very cool all right nathan let's uh do what we came here to do man uh let's talk about your relationship with alcohol how it started the progression how you felt along the way and we'll work ourselves up to uh this past april and to today so sounds uh, good yeah wherever you'd like to kick us off maybe the early days well so i'm i'm a late bloomer i didn't drink in high school i think i sampled you know dad's beer or whatever actually he switched to na beer when i was pretty young so sampled that and i've always hated beer i don't like it at all hate the taste never liked wine so i was kind of a normal drinker all through my 20s and early 30s i could have you know a whiskey with a cigar with the guys to relax and not drink for three months never think about it so it wasn't until like 37 38 kind of that that's when the problem started for sure okay so yeah that's that's not i mean in the grand scheme of things that's not that long ago no feels like a long time but yeah yeah with digging into to dad's beer and and stuff like that was was alcohol like a normal a normal part of like like was it normalized in your life something you were yeah. seen around yeah like my mom's side of the family they were all scotch drinkers but it was you know do it socially and i don't remember a time seeing anybody you know annihilated when i was younger it was it was always around but it wasn't a big deal and my dad switched to any beer like i said when i was young my mom has said that he kind of thought he might be developing a problem so he just quit i don't think he ever did you know aa or meetings or anything like that he just shut it off <laughs> switch show duels man what's that like <laughs> to just turn it off yeah all right so normal you know just kind of sounds like routine exposure but nothing nothing monumental or yeah you know no. surrounded by hard drinkers so well what uh what happened in in your late 30s Did, have you have you got to the point where you you've dug in to to see what created that shift so i just actually recently graduated from an iop and i had what i believe is the best counselor to have ever, ever counseled anyone shout out rhonda what up she rhonda? was awesome <laughs> and so her and i in you know because that consists of some group therapy sessions you know multiple nights a week and then a one-on-one -on -one with her so i kind of recognized right away what an opportunity i had with her so we did a lot of work and like mapped out my whole timeline there and cross-reference to significant life events and that kind of stuff. So in late 2019, my wife had an incident where she lost consciousness while she was driving on the freeway and got into a car accident. And it was health-related stuff that was really scary. She wasn't able to drive for three months. She had to do testing for like seizures and all this other stuff. And so I was working, but also trying to commute her to work at the same time and, you know, that was that was really stressful and then shortly after that obviously the pandemic started so we shifted right into the pandemic i was put on a project at work where basically they set us up to fail so mm. so me and another guy they threw us into this project and somehow we succeeded but it was 
unbelievably stressful. And it was all a lot of stuff I'd never worked on before. So then uh, pandemic starts, I develop and I don't know, stop me if it's TMI, right? But ultimately what they determined was chronic prostatitis. So I was having issues with my bladder and like to the point where I couldn't sleep anymore. Mm. You know, you'd go lay down in bed and you've just gone to the bathroom, but immediately it feels like you're going to pee your pants, you know? So you're up and down out of bed and that's half the night probably for quite a long time. And then it's lesser during the day, but it's still like... I can't explain how debilitating that was, you know, being in work meetings and having to run out of work meetings and all that sort of stuff. And that's when I discovered th the only thing that eased those symptoms up that I found was alcohol. Dude, that sounds, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of shit all, all at once. I mean, the care of a loved one and just the stress, like the logistics of having to get two people to two places. That's a lot pandemic rolls in and then you know a health concern like that if part of like part of my recovery work too has been you know like looking back like you were talking about looking we did the same thing when i went through treatment look look back at the different things that have happened to us and something you know health concerns like that the way that impacts are on so many levels just i mean just the discomfort but the possibility for embarrassment and, and not understanding and yeah, man, that sounds that sounds really hard, Nathan. I'm sorry you're going through all that, man. Yeah, I mean, and there's, you know, I've ultimately come to learn that there was more to it than that. Even, you know, there was additional stress in there. I mean, I was, you know, my mom's in her 70s, so I was worried about her during the pandemic. My wife also has RA, so I was at the beginning of the pandemic. We were worried about what would happen if she got it because she takes meds that suppress her immune system. Mm. And if we're honest about it, my my relationship with my wife wasn't perfect communication issues and you know that kind of stuff and so yeah and then i mean it might i don't want to say midlife crisis but there was a part of me too that's been stressing out about work for a long time where you know i'd sit in my cubicle and go i i can't do this for another 25 years i freaking hate coming to work every day you know it's you get stuck right you're making a decent salary, you got six weeks of vacation, you got benefits for you and your wife and, you know, it's paying for the house and all that stuff. And it's hard to change that or, you know, what do I want to do? Yeah. Sometimes the, the things that we seek end up like holding us captive as well. You know, this solid career and, the th and everything that comes with it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty risk averse person too, you know, one of the things Rhonda told me as I graduated IOP was stop doing what you think you're supposed to be doing. Go do what you want to do. You know? Yeah. You and I are, you and I are, are, are close in age and geographically relatively close. And I think there's a lot of guys that are, that are like us probably more than just up here that but around the, around the planet who we just believe this is what this is. This is the layout. Find your, right. find a job, find something secure and you stay with it until right before you die, you retire. Right. <laughs> Man. So you found that alcohol kind of eased some of your symptoms. What did that, uh, what did that uptick in alcohol look like? What before, before it, it increased, what just like on a week, what did your average consumption look like? And then what did it start to evolve into? So I was never really an everyday drinker. I would drink a lot of days, but I would also have bigger binge sessions, but I could, 
you know, regularly I would take a couple days off or a week off or even longer sometimes, but then, you know, eventually right back to it. What I figured out was if I would stop at the liquor store and get five or six shooters, I could do that in an evening and roll into work the next day without too bad of a hangover to function, you know? <laughs> yeah. These, uh, it's funny, these, these little methods that we figure out to fix our life. Right. Right. But even it, that sucked though, cause that's not how I wanted to drink. I wanted to get as drunk as possible, as fast as possible. So even doing that, it, it, trying to moderate it like that even sucked because I was doing it, but I'm like, well, I, I'm not even enjoying what I'm doing. Yeah. It was kind of like a maintenance sort of situation. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough place to be too. To this, I was talking to someone the other day about moderation and they, they had mentioned, you know, well, you know, there's these periods where I can do whatever I can, I can meet my goal and it's like, all right, well, what does on paper, you know, I'm only having a six pack. I'm only having so many shots or what, whatever criteria you've set for yourself to be quote unquote, I'm normal. I'm fine. But internally what happens? And, and for me, if I was like, we're going to a, a barbecue, I'm only going to have a six pack of the barbecue on paper. That's what I did. But that, that internal voice was, it was always thinking like, how do I drink this? Do I chug it? Do I milk it and make it last? Like, is there a way, you know, could I hide one under the seat of my truck? Like it was, it was a mess. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't, I would purposely not drink socially just so, you know, cause I, I knew there was an issue and I was having trouble with it, but I would purposely not drink it socially. So nobody else would know. And it still looked like I had my stuff together. So then it's like, well, if we're going to go to my brother's house for a barbecue, how many shots can I take? How far in advance? And then I'm okay to drive and, you know, and it, but the whole time I'm there, I'm thinking, well, I, I really want to get home so I can sit in the garage and drink like a goblin, you know? That's a lot of work, man. It is. Did anybody ever notice this, the uptick in the drinking or, or express any concerns about it? Uh, the only one was my wife. Yeah. I hid it from everybody else and I thought I was hiding it from her mostly, but there were, you know, there were a few times where, you know, I did try to moderate and have my five in an evening. And then all of a sudden I'd find myself drinking her tequila out of the pantry. And it's like, what are you doing? You know? And, you know, she had to put the lines on the bottle or the bottles in there. And I would try to fill them back up or go replace them or what. And I can't even tell you like how awful that makes you feel in the moment, you know, or even the next day or whatever, even not getting caught. It's like, I'm lying to the one person I shouldn't be lying to, you know, yeah. I, it, that part of being stuck in the addiction was maybe the worst part for me because it's not who you really are. Yeah. Yeah. I think it definitely, it definitely creates a separation of, of who we want to present ourselves to be and, and just who we want to be. We, you know, we want to be, I think it's ingrained in all of us. We want to be honest. We want to be kind, loving, caring. We want to honor and respect people. And out of at the moment what feels like survival we have such a drive for this thing we're just crossing all those lines right that's tough man how long did that did that usage pattern last uh, and did it did it ramp up even more beyond that so that was pretty consistent but there would be periods where we were you know or we i was on and off take a week off you know whatever and that was always like i never looked into recovery. You know, I knew what AA was um, from watching movies, reading books, whatever, just 
existing, um, but I never explored it. I never Googled like, are you an alcoholic? What I Googled was alcohol withdrawal and I would not have withdrawal symptoms and be like, well, I'm fine then, you know, like there's no consequences to what I'm doing. Eventually my wife started a, a new position and she started working like a 312 rotating shift okay. and she would cover some overnight shifts and often that would be like friday and saturday overnight so i could plan my binge on a friday she'd leave the house at 5 30 p.m when i'm getting off work and nobody's you know i used to think about that though too like what if my mom or somebody calls me for an emergency and i won't be available that used to weigh on me but not enough to not binge out of my mind and drink a whole bottle of vodka on a Friday, you know? Mm. Yeah. That, uh, I can relate to that too. I'm a shift worker and I loved those days where I had, I had the whole day to myself. It was like a, it was like a hall pass. I could do what I wanted to, how I wanted to. And in my head, like nobody's the wiser. We kind of, yeah, we give ourselves permission to, again, you know, like we were just talking about, that's another, it's another line that we allow ourselves to cross that, no, normally we wouldn't. Right. That behavior becomes acceptable. Well, I think that's the attic brain too, right? Telling you there's nobody knows what you're doing. There's no consequences to this. Mm-hmm. You know, you haven't been caught yet. You're not out driving drunk or whatever. You're yeah. not hurting anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing happened. So what could be wrong? Right. How long was that taking place? And and were there ever like, did, did there ever happen to be any, any consequences either like singular or, or regular? Not really. No. I mean, I knew that I wasn't like as good at my job as I should be. I knew I wasn't as available for people as I should be. I knew I wasn't present emotionally for my wife the way I needed to be, but no, I mean, I, I never had a DUI or any legal issues. I didn't get fired or even talk to at work or any of that stuff. And I wasn't like an angry drunk, right? So it's not like I was, I wouldn't pick fights with my wife when I was drunk. I was doing it, I was isolating and avoiding and, you know. So, I mean, the consequences were more or less internal. I mean, you get further and further down that shame and guilt spiral. And, you know, I guess like I put on some weight and felt gross, <laughs> you know, but yeah. as far as legit consequences, no. Nope. Yeah. You know, I think that's something that we, that there's a lot of people that are, I don't know, let's say on that hamster wheel where that's, that's the metric for do, do I have a problem? Am I an alcoholic? Am I, you know, am I, do I have substance use disorder? Like whatever. I mean, a lot of times we jump right to that label. And if we don't have exposure to recovery or people in recovery, we, we just assume that it has to be this worst case scenario. And if we don't, you know, if our, our drinking life isn't manifesting the DUIs, the loss of job, the, you know, disastrous things, you know, that are real overt in a, in a relationship, it, it can perpetuate that. I, th- I think it absolutely perpetuates that drinking. It, it keeps us in it. How could I have a problem? Because I'm still, you know, maybe I'm not in the top 10% at work, but I'm performing. I'm not getting talked to. Yep. I'm, I'm functioning. I haven't, you know, like you said, I haven't not been able to show up yet uh, yep. for, for family and, but, I mean, the yard was, yards always mowed, driveways always shoveled, bills were paid on time. You know what, like, there just weren't any of those, um, I don't want to say rock bottoms or whatever, but it was, you know, that's what keeps you in it longer, I think, in that mm-hmm. case, because it's, how could I have a problem? You're right. Yeah. yeah, and I think a lot of people will even go 
to the other extreme too. I know there was certain arenas in my in my life that I did where I would overperform in some aspects to like as an offset. You know, it was kind of like the seesaw. It's like, well, I'm doing so much good here that if you know if I get blotto every once in a while, who cares? Yeah. You had mentioned Nathan that there was uh, some periods where where you'd go maybe a week or so, or uh, you'd have these little dry stretches. What did what did you feel like in those moments? They're they're kind of hard to remember, to be honest. You know, I don't know that I always felt much of anything. It was almost like, you know, this is what you always used to do. I, I know I would exercise more regularly, so I think that was probably helpful. But I, I do remember times where, like, I would go to bed sober and I'd be all excited when I crawled into bed. Like, look, you did it, man. <laughs> Yeah, And then we're not going to do this tomorrow. And then at four o'clock, I'm at the liquor store going, how'd I end up here? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. It's the, the little teaser moments where we're, where we were proud of ourselves. And then that, uh, do you feel like it was, if you, when you would find yourself in a moment like that, where you're back at the liquor store, do you think shame was setting in for you? Oh, for sure. Yeah. That was a big thing, right? Like towards the end, I guess. And through the process of actually realizing, hey, this is a real problem. It's that being able to admit it even to myself was so hard just because there is so much shame and guilt and embarrassment. And, you know, I have this probably unhealthy need to like project to everyone that I have my shit together. And, you know, I don't want anybody to see behind the veil and, you know, realize that, nope. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big broken mess over here. That's tough when we, when we create that ex- expectation for ourselves. That's a, I think it's a hard place to live. It's unrealistic. To, yeah, I've definitely got issues with trying to be a perfectionist, for sure. It, uh, I don't. Know, sometimes it feels safer that way, though. Not that, not, uh, not, not to justify it, but you know, I have, I have some of that too, and it's, it's hard. What if, what if some, you know, what if somebody finds out that there's this issue and they, they use it against me or, yeah, or they treat me differently or don't accept me? It's that can be, that can be a tough pill to, to swallow. Well, let's keep walking forward, uh, leading up to, uh, April of this year, uh, you know, prior to your, your quit date, were there, were there things that were happening that, that were motivating this decision or was it just a, a culmination? No, I was actually ramping up volume and okay. drinking more the weekend before, or like a week and a half before the, the quit date was Easter weekend. Um, and my wife's parents live a couple hours north of here. So we went up there that weekend and I, I didn't drink and it was fine. Didn't even really think about it while I was up there. And that's one of those things, right? You're in an environment where you can't, it's like smoking on an airplane, right? You know, you can't. So you just kind of don't think about it. But then we, we came home and I, I'm pretty sure I drank every night that week. And then Friday and Saturday, I went especially hard. And then Sunday afternoon, I was super hungover. <laughs> and thought I was having a heart attack. It was my first time experiencing real severe withdrawal symptoms. And looking back, I can notice I had some minor ones, but I didn't really attribute it to that at first. So um, I actually had my wife rush me over to the ER because I thought I was dying. And it wasn't until being there about three hours after they ran all the tests that it dawned on me what it was. And I still couldn't say anything. My wife was in the room. I was laying in bed. My heart rate's up over a hundred and you know, there's, they're finding nothing on the test. And I go, all right, dummy, that's what this is. <laughs> but 
but I still couldn't admit it. So after being there, I don't know what it was, four or five hours, we came home and uh, went to drink in the garage because I knew that would, you know, slow the heart rate down and Mm -hmm. fix that. So I decided that night, I still can't tell anybody. I'm too embarrassed and ashamed of it. So I'm going to go ahead and taper myself (laughs) because I don't want to go through withdrawals and have seizures and do all that stuff. So that was a miserable failure that I spent the next two days trying. And uh, Wednesday morning then, after waking up again at four in the morning and drinking vodka two minutes later, you know, I'm going, this is not doable and sustainable and whatever. So it was, you know, seven o'clock Wednesday morning, I finally told my wife and admitted the whole thing. And um, initially she was angry about it, to be honest. That didn't last long. She got over it pretty quick. And uh, I think it was like one o'clock that afternoon, we went back to the same ER and I walked in and said, I need help. Man, that's, there's every once in a while when someone shares their, like the, like those, like the moments that you just did, it just, I don't know, it just brings me back to those feelings, like those last, those last attempts at drinking and just the amount of like how badly we want to be able to control this and how badly we want to have some sort of power over it. And it just doesn't, it doesn't work. And we keep letting ourselves down and, and it feels like such a just absolute, just a shit moment. Oh, I, yeah, I was so broken and defeated in that moment. And a lot of that is because I couldn't fix it myself. Right. And that's a hard admission when you say, you know, you don't have the tools or the skills or the know-how or whatever to get through this. But it's something that I've heard a lot on the podcast, right? Is that's the surrender moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been fighting it all this time and it's not working. So that's the moment I surrendered. And I said, you know, I'm going to turn myself over to whoever I can. You tell me what to do. I'm done with this. Yeah, there's a lot of, it's tough. I think our society pushes us to, we're supposed to be, you know, not just men. I think just our society in general pushes everybody like you got to be self-sufficient you got to be able to stand on your own and and there's something cool about that but also we, you know holy shit man we need to be able to ask for help too and there's yeah. did you feel a sense of freedom when you're when you're able to have that like whoever like whoever's running this show just show me yeah well, i just even telling my wife that morning i felt a thousand pounds lighter just letting go of the secret or, you know, I mean, I guess it wasn't fully a secret, but so the the gals in our family, my mom, <clears throat> my sister, my sister-in-law, my wife, my niece, they get together like twice a month. And it happened to be on Wednesdays, which is the day we did this. So I told my wife, you know, just go to girls night, you know, they're checking me into the hospital or whatever and tell everybody I, I want to blow it all out into the open. You know, I just let's, we're done screwing around with it. Yeah. You know, that's a big I had act. not heard the word accountability yet, but I guess intuitively I knew I needed it. That's a big, uh, burn the ship moments, huh? Yep. So you, uh, you go into the hospital, the same hospital and you let them know, Hey, I got this, I got this thing. I need some help. What did they do for you? So they had to keep me overnight in the ER and wait for a bed to open. Um, but I went to their sister hospital a uh, couple cities over and I spent a week in a hospital inpatient detox and that was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought I'd be there. Yeah. Did, uh, did you yourself 
uh, go through pretty severe withdrawals or is it just kind of exposure to the, that scene that, that was crazy? Yeah, it was, it was the scene. Yeah. I mean, they had me on, you know, gabapentin and, um, uh, benzos. So yeah. my withdrawal symptoms weren't, I felt like foggy and like I had a speech impediment more or less. Like I wasn't, I didn't really have a lot of the night sweats or any of that kind of thing, but that was a really weird experience. Cause even though I was there, like wanting to get help and like seeing it as an opportunity to get everything I could out of it. Um, initially there was still some comparison, right? Cause I was the only one there who had never been through detox before. Um, all these people were veterans. So there's still a part of me that's like impressed, right? Like you guys, life's kicking your ass, but you guys are all still trying, you know? But at the same time, I'm comparing on like, well, I'm not as bad as this guy until like the third day. And then the, the psychiatric nurse practitioner showed me a list of like 12 things. And, you know, we're going to rank your, uh, alcohol use disorder, mild, moderate, severe. And I got done and I went, um, yeah, I fit every one of those. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I had a similar experience when I went to rehab, it was out of the 12 people who were in my initial outpatient group. I think there was three of us that were in there for booze. And I was like, I don't think I, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. This, you know, this guy's overdosed on benzos and this guy's, you know, shooting Dilaudid. Like I'm in the wrong place, but it, it doesn't, it does not matter. It, it does not matter. We're all doing the same shit. It's all the same. There's uh you know, sometimes the consequences and the the speed at which some of these things will take you down, but we're we're all doing the same shit. So after you finished detox, did they did you find yourself in a, a treatment program then? Yeah, so they kind of gave us some of the options and stuff um in there. <clears throat> and then so I was a week in there, and I think it was uh like five days after I started my IOP. And that was a virtual IOP because I could get in sooner versus, you know, waiting a couple, three weeks or whatever to do in person. So, but I think, you know, like I mentioned, I think I found the best counselor I possibly could have. So I think it worked out the way it was supposed to. That's good, man. It's good when we can connect with, we can find that connection with people. So got, you said detox for a week, come back, and then you had to work, you know, work your way into this IOP. What were things like when you came back home after detox? What were Let's let's talk like first 90 days. You're at uh just over five months now. Like I think those first 90 days are real crucial. There's a, a lot of things that happen and 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 you had even mentioned at the beginning that some things have have shifted. So yeah, let's just kind of walk through maybe some of the good stuff and tough stuff and maybe some of the things you've learned, uh, starting with that first 90. Yeah. First 90 was interesting. I mean, I kind of jumped like full steam ahead into recovery, right? Because they they kind of talked about that in detox. And um, as we started into the IOP stuff, uh, I realized what, you know, I think I've heard Paul talk about seeing his alcohol use as an opportunity. And I had, I had started listening to the podcast and that really resonated, right? Like I could be the success story that didn't lose the job, didn't ruin a relationship, you know, didn't have all these consequences and I can figure it out and move forward. But at the same time, I had a lot of post-acute withdrawal symptoms. So there was extreme exhaustion. I couldn't possibly sleep enough. 
um, short-term memory problems. I had issues concentrating at work. There was like a periods of anhedonia where, you know, even the stuff that you know you're supposed to like, you're not getting any joy out of doing it. So it was it was honestly kind of a slog to start with, but I still had like all this positivity, you know, for because I was doing a lot of the, you know, through IOP and then on my own reading about some of this stuff and gaining that knowledge. So I'm like, all right, there is this stuff is temporary, you know, it will lift and it'll be better. And I, I would say it like day 105 or so is when I, it really started to turn around and I started to feel better, like physically and with a lot of the mental stuff. But so I did, I got out of detox towards the end of April, June 12th, I was informed, I got my pre-notice and my layoff at work. And so that I was kind of okay with because I figured I had the safety net of being able to transition to my wife's benefits. I would have a severance package, um, home was safe, all that's good, right? So maybe this is the opportunity I can go figure out what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and then <clears throat> mid-August is when my wife came to me and basically told me that she had fallen out of love with me and wanted a divorce. So that's six weeks ago, roughly. So that, I mean, that basically released a monumental shitstorm of old insecurities, destructive core beliefs, you know, negative feelings and self-talk and all that stuff, which is part of what Rhonda and I had been trying to work on during my treatment was some of that core belief stuff. And it was interesting working with her, trying to use it like with my thinking mind, I could come up with like one maybe. But when that emotion started to come up and push those through, I think I, after the initial conversation with my wife, I emailed Rhonda like a few days later and I said, well, here's nine (laughs) that I found. Yeah. They found their way front and center, huh? Yeah. Man, Nathan. Yeah, you're right. You kind of got your ass handed to you, but you're here. You're here with, uh, just over, just over five months. Dude, that's a lot of, that's a lot of heavy stuff to get, to get placed in your lap in, in a relatively, I mean, early sobriety in and of itself is like, like not to make it sound impossible because it's, it's far from impossible, but it's, it can be incredibly challenging. And you've had some big stuff on top of that, man. And I think part of it goes to show the the power that's in, in having a support system, you know, through your IOP. And I think another even bigger part, which is kind of a, just to a big F you to some of those shitty core beliefs is just the strength that you have in yourself, because at any time a drink was available to you. And, and I hope that you can see this, that th- this is a choice that you've made in the work that you've done that in the face of all of this to not pick one up. And for what it's worth, man, like I'm in, I'm incredibly proud of you. And that's, that's, that's a big deal, dude. And and I hope that you can see that and that, that you can show yourself that love for like, you know what, I I have done it and it's, it doesn't mean that it's easy, but I've made it to today. Yeah. And that, and that means something. I appreciate that. And, and if I'm going to be honest, there's, I think a big part of not drinking during this is that I'm completely terrified. Um, you know, we talked about playing the tape for a lot. I don't know where that ends. If I pick up now with yeah. all this, I mean, I felt as bad as I felt during active addiction, it's way worse now, sometimes, you know, so I, 
I don't know if I come back from it if I pick up now. Yeah. Yeah, it is scary. What uh, I think that's, I, th- I think those are some things that I-, I think that's fairly common for, for us to be like, what would have, have to happen in my life for me to like want, want to do it again. And then if, if those exterior circumstances happen and then led me to drink, then what's to what end? And that's uh yeah, that's, that could be a bit of a terrifying place to be sitting. Yeah. I want to ask a bit about, you talked about these beliefs, like some of these shitty feelings that we can have our, about ourselves. And I don't know if it lightens the load any, but I think, I think you're in good company for, for, for receiving that. There's, I mean, there's, we hear about it all the time on the podcast about, about people who just have this negative self-talk that rolls in and, and just for whatever reason tries to tear us down. What are some tools that you've, that you've used or, or things that you're trying to, to, to work through that and, and expose the truth about yourself, you know, the, the good truth. You know, it's, I haven't found anything yet. That's like the solution, right? I've been doing like daily gratitude lists and affirmations. Um, but honestly, there's days where it's like, it's impossible to believe them. You know what I mean? Um, and it's hard to look in the mirror and say those things and even want to believe it sometimes. So I, I've started therapy and I've actually bounced to a couple different therapists and I started with a new one right away this morning. <laughs> so um, I'm hoping she can help me because yeah. I wish I had the answer to it because I'm kind of stuck in that place right now, you know? Yeah. You know, I think uh, one of the, one of the big keys in my experience is, is just a willingness. And that's, and that's something that, that I see in you very, uh, that's a, a light shining off you brightly is a willingness to, to dig in and be, and to, to be honest about it. Like, I don't know, you know, and sometimes those, I know what you mean. I've, I've had those moments where I've got like, okay, let me get my affirmations. Chris, you're tall and handsome and you've got a wonderful, no, uh, like <laughs> I tell myself this stuff and I've got these affirmations and God loves me and I can say it and I can intellectually know that like, yeah, like this, whatever this negative self-talk for me, it's a lot about like people hate you and you suck. And and like, I know that's a load of shit, but intellectually I'll know it, but like that emotionally, I it's, it's like, I can't release it. Right. And those, you know, for me, what has helped, it's not a, it's not a fix. I, you know, I don't have that light switch to turn that off in myself, but that practice of the affirmations, the practice of the gratitude, and then throw in like being honest, like having a, you know, some peers, I've got a sponsor and, and a, a handful of really great friends that I've met, uh, through recovery, just letting them know, like, Hey, this is the shit I'm telling myself. And, and they know it's, they know that it's, I'm, I'm grateful for them. It's not their job to fix me either. Cause I, like, I don't need to be fixed. I'm just going through a hard time Yeah, and they'll kind of hold space and, and, and reinforce some of those affirmations and it, it helps, but kudos to you for, continuing to dig and continuing to find to want to search for ways to to get through it well i think that's that's the work right i mean that's that's a lot of the why because that stuff's living in your subconscious and guiding your behavior and and your actions and your thoughts even if you're not aware of it so you gotta address that stuff yeah yeah you're right what's the work like that's it figuring out where these limiting beliefs and these shitty thoughts and and exactly, man, you said it perfectly. The, the 
the things in our mind that are guiding our behavior, figure out where they come from. And uh, that's a good word, dude. Uh, Nathan, before we jump into rapid fire, you know, like you said, you've got, you got a lot on your plate right now, but I, I believe in you and I, I know that you can, I know that you will continue to get through this. You mentioned that you started with another therapist this morning. What other sorts of things are you using uh, maybe in a, in a practical sense, day by day to get through if, you, if you're having some tough times? Well, this might sound funny or counterintuitive, I guess. But in the last six weeks, my wife and I have communicated more openly and honestly than we ever have in the 16 years we've been together. And a lot of this, you know, it's it's not 100% my drinking that brought us here. And she has completely owned her responsibility for her portion of, of why we are where we are. And she started to address her issues as well. So I'm super proud of her for that. In a lot of ways, you know, it's she used diving into work and unhealthy eating and, you know, other unhealthy coping skills. It wasn't necessarily booze or drugs or whatever, but it's she was still avoiding all the stuff that she had to do. So we have been talking every day in depth. And I feel like I got my best friend back, even through this process. So it's like the most amicable divorce uh, possible that's ever happened, ever. (laughs) (laughs) And she's giving me time to breathe, to try to look for a new job before we, you know, move forward in the process. And she's been amazing in that sense. But yeah, I don't know. Just being able to communicate with others, I think, has just been the biggest thing because i spent so long never talking about anything yeah the door's open man and now you're, you're spewing and i love it yeah i mean i have to watch that right because then I'm, I'm like boy am i needy right now Every, <laughs> people are gonna get sick of me but well that's a uh i don't know to me that's a blessing of of recovery people is yeah i was needy as hell man and some <laughs> was i say was not anymore uh yeah sometimes <laughs> i still am and uh that's a that's a beauty of of uh of recovery people i think is that like we know like we get it we get like i know what that i know what it's like to need to be told that i'm enough and that i'm loved every 45 seconds <laughs> and while i'm working on not needing that validation i've got some people who are gonna be like yeah hey dummy we love you oh it's such a weird place to be though to know you need that and like not want to burden other people with having to give it back. I, I don't know. I just don't like that place. <laughs> yeah. You know, stick with the recovery crowd, man. They'll, I'm telling you, they'll, that's, that's, that's what I love about them is that they will, they will always like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I get it. And we love, yes, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> Nathan, this time has flown by and we are at the rapid fire round in 30 to 60 seconds. I'm going to ask you to answer these questions. Nathan, are you ready? I am ready. Number one, what was your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking? Oh, I've got two and I don't know which weighs more than the other. So first of all, admitting I had an issue in the first place and second, failing at sobriety. I didn't want to let other people down or myself. Yeah, I get that. Uh, Number two, what is a positive that you didn't expect in your life without alcohol? Uh, It's actually what we were just talking about before the rapid fire round, or what you were. It's that immediate connection that you have with other people in recovery. Like there's, I hate small talk and you don't need it here. (laughs) Like we're right into the deep stuff, you know? 
Yep. <laughs> What's your favorite sandwich? Also, tell me about your childhood trauma. Uh, <laughs> it's a cool place, man. Number three, what is your go-to alcohol-free drink? Oh, I'm a coffee guy. Coffee? Black? Mocha? Milk? I like a little sugar. Straightforward. Uh, number four, what is your favorite resource in recovery? This can be a book, a program, an app, a community, anything. Um, well, at the risk of making Rhonda's e ego too big, I would say Rhonda, my IOP counselor, but outside of like treatment, it's, it's the recovery elevator podcast and cafe RE. They've been the biggest for me. Nice. Yeah. And keep, yeah, I completely support, uh, blowing up those uh addiction counselors i had uh i had two when i went through treatment and i i loved them they changed they changed my life they gave me my life back so we can give her kudos all day uh <laughs> what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are either brand new to recovery or thinking about getting sober here we go again Rhonda. so she had us in iop create a detailed written relapse prevention plan and essentially, I see that as like my bridge from sobriety into recovery, right? So like if you're fighting cravings and triggers and, you know, figuring out motivations and some of that stuff, that'll get you through to the point where you can do the work, right? So when she presented that to us, I went, this is genius. Why does, why don't I see this everywhere in recovery, you know? So I, I would say that, um, make a plan, make it really detailed, change it as you need to. It's a good tool, man. And last, but certainly not least, can you give listeners your favorite? You might need to ditch the booze if line. You might need to ditch the booze if you drive over to one of the liquor stores in your rotation and suddenly find it's closed. And then you throw a childlike tantrum in your car because you're going to have to see the folks at the other stores a little more often. Don't they know what I'm trying to do here? <laughs> You know what's interesting is just the fact I, that how many of our audience are going to relate with just the first part of that. A liquor, you go to a liquor store in your rotation. <laughs> it's, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, man, you might, you might need to give it up. Nathan, thanks for opening up, dude. Thanks for being vulnerable. Uh, thanks for being so honest and sharing your story, dude. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right, brother. Be well. Recovery Elevator, thanks for listening. And thank you, Nathan, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. I love the resilience that Nathan has already shown in his recovery. Not to scare anyone away from the idea of getting sober, but we see it all the time. Someone has their quote-unquote bottom, they ditch the booze and start to embrace the new view on their journey, then bam, out of nowhere, life smacks us. For me, sobriety was the first time in a long time that I was actually feeling things. Similar to Nathan, I had some big stuff thrown at me, but even some of the small day-to-day -day feelings felt extra big. To anyone who's experienced this, I want to encourage you to stick with it. If we've been checked out and numbing ourselves for a while, it's normal to feel a little bit overstimulated. These are chances for us to try out some of those fancy new sobriety tools you keep hearing people talk about. Do some quick meditations or breathing. Start journaling. No format. Just write and get the stuff out of your head. Find a way to be of service or be kind to someone around you. Or get some endorphins flowing with physical activity. Any of these techniques can work, 
but the key takeaway for me is to put a gap between the stimulus, what it is that's causing me frustration, stress, or anxiety, and my response. If I can create that gap, it positions me to be able to respond in a healthy way versus react in a way that may do harm. Keep at it, RE. We're never going to get this perfect, but if we maintain a willingness to learn through these experiences, we're going to keep growing. You're the only one that can do this, but you don't have to do it alone. I love you guys.